Support for this episode of Queen Things with me, Gloria Mangi, comes from Black and Green. Black and Green is a marketplace of natural products that use high quality, ethically sourced, and toxic-free ingredients from Black-owned female artisans worldwide. Fill your cart with the best in skincare, beauty, and accessories at blackgreen.com. That is B-L-K-G-R-N.com. Use promo code QUEEN10 for a special discount. Live happy, be healthy, be free. Now let's get into the show. Coming up. Oh, she's looking for a husband and my mom's not like that at all. It just made me angry. How can this community that is supposed to be my support system where I'm supposed to have family, you know, friends and family be so against the fact of me having success. Thank you for joining us on Queen Things with me, Gloria Mangi. We got so much gold on today's show that your soul and mind will definitely be richer by the end of this show. If you are a brand new listener, make sure your crown is on tight because Queen Things is all about elevating, celebrating, sharing, and empowering African women around the world. So I'm going to jump into one of my favorite parts of the show, Ask Our Kings, where we break down a divide and invite our kings to join in on the conversation. On today's Ask Our Kings, we pose the question, is a woman dismissing her race or heritage when she marries outside of her race? Peter from Kenya said, love has no boundaries and it is a good thing to have interracial marriages because you can teach one another about each other's heritage. Peter, I need to keep it real with you and say that I hate it when people say that love has no boundaries because love does have boundaries. Everyone has their limit. And if love was a person, he or she would have their limit too. Marcus from Louisiana, USA kept it simple. He said, love is love. Affection is affection. Okay, Romeo, good wordplay, but it didn't really address the question. And our last comment is from Abdo from Sudan. And he said, Oh, hell yes, she's dismissing her race and her heritage because her children can no longer fully claim to any one side and will stand out because of it. She will also probably have to compromise to fit into the new world, but she'll be a target because of it. Abdo, as harsh as you came off, you actually spoke a reality. My question to you would be, what if she's not the one compromising? But he is. Think about it. All right. That is all we have time for. If you want to join in on the conversation or want to see what other people are saying, follow us on Twitter at QueenThingsPod. We're also on Instagram at QueenThingsPodcast. And be sure to like our Facebook page as well, QueenThingsWithGloriaMangi. Be sure to use the hashtag AskOurKings. Now let's head over to the throne room and pick the beautiful mind of Queen Suzanne Lepke. She has some great things to share on race, love, and career. Keep it locked right here. Step into the throne room with your host, Gloria Mangi. 
Born in Ames, Iowa to immigrant parents from Nigeria before subsequently moving to Tennessee, Suzanne Lepke was surrounded by other immigrant families, which added color to her childhood. This all changed when she moved to North Dakota to a community where there was very little diversity. Her parents worked hard to give her the best education and briefly put her through private school before having to transfer to public school when they could no longer afford the tuition after the birth of her siblings. This didn't stop her parents from making sure she had opportunities to put her extra energy and high achievement to use. It was it, because it was so jarring. My mom really wanted to make sure that we didn't feel like we were different or um, let anyone make us feel that we were different. So even then she tried to put us into school programs, force us to get involved. Try. Mm-hmm. I played volleyball. I did dance. I did soccer. Um, they really encouraged us to do extracurricular activities because, again, staying in the house, just sitting, watching TV is not it's not going to help your brain. It's not going to help your mind. Right. And they tried to instill what they I mean, they played. They were outside all the time. They said we never stayed at home. So you guys shouldn't stay at home. All the yeah. Time they spoke Igbo in the house. Um, they We hung out with a lot of other Igbo people that they knew and and Mm -hmm. Africans. So it was always a part of growing up. But when, you know, going to school, it's like, okay, you need to make sure you succeed. You need to excel. You won't have friends or people won't like you. Cause I remember coming home and be like, people don't like me. And it's like, that's their loss. You know, you're smart. You're there to have a purpose. Well, my dad was more like, you're there to have a purpose, make friends, don't make friends. My mom was more like, try to fit in as best as you can so that, to make your life easy. They wanted to make sure that we didn't struggle because I think they struggled a little bit to try to assimilate into the culture. They moved here in the, in the 70s, so um, mm. it was a little different, and they moved to Iowa. So did you already have an idea about what you wanted to, to be, um, and was was that something that was instilled at you at a young age or you know how African parents can be, you know, we want oh, a doctor, yeah. we want a lawyer, you know, anything else. Nah. So how was it for no, you? That's, um, well, I guess I was told that I was going to always be a doctor. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> My dad was an engineer. I was like, well, why can't I be an engineer? He's like, no, you're going to be a doctor. I'm like, Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Um, so I think I was always, and I remember distinctly, uh, I think I was five years old and my mom took a picture of me. I, ha- I pretend I, again, your, what happens in America influence, influences you. So I remember I wanted long, beautiful hair. So I had mm-hmm. a hoodie that I always wore hoodies. And mm-hmm. so I would pretend that this blue hoodie was my hair. <laughs> so <laughs> I was a picture of me with this blue hoodie on because I, you know, have my hair natural as a kid uh-huh. with this blue hoodie on as my hair. And this little tiny like thing, like a doctor set, and I was like op- pretending to operate on myself. And I was like, "That's see you. You just you had natural affinity to be a doctor." I'm like, "No, you guys forced that on me." And I was, yeah, whatever. <laughs> but um, and I remember, so I thought, oh, "Okay, I'm just gonna be. I guess I'm gonna be a doctor." Um, mm-hmm. And I remember breaking down in high school, be like, "I don't know if I, I'm I'm smart enough to be a doctor." And my dad was like, why are you, why do you think that? Why do you think that? Yeah. Uh-uh. You're going to school, you're getting A's, you're smart enough to be a doctor. I'm like, yeah. okay, I don't think I am, but I was like, mm-hmm. maybe I could be a lawyer. Or, and I think for my parent, my dad's side, it was 
lawyers were sneaky, so you're a doctor, mm. or you can be an engineer. <laughs> yeah. That's basically, that's basically it. Those are the only two tracks. Susan entered college and majored in biology and discovered that though she enjoyed learning about things like chemistry and other similar subjects, she didn't like the idea of opening people up. So I had my first anatomy class, I think, my sophomore year. And I almost passed out every single time we had to go to a cadaver. Oh, no. I'm like, oh, I don't think oh, I yeah. can be a doctor. Yeah, <laughs> we don't want a fainting doctor. <laughs> because I had like a similar experience as well. With, you know, parents wanted me to be a doctor. My dad is a doctor. Um, mm. And so, yes, I can completely relate with, you know, this this forced career. And you're just sitting there in class thinking, man, I don't know if I want to spend the rest of my life, you know, doing right. this. Plus, right. like you, I don't want to, I don't like, you know, I don't mind blood, but having to deal with all the other nasty stuff, I just, I'm like, I don't know how everybody, <laughs> I don't know how everybody else does it. <laughs> so, just to be sure, Suzanne attended a mini medical school that allowed prospective medical students to have a chance to experience what medical school was like by shadowing doctors at hospitals. Suzanne soon discovered the disconnect between the doctors and the patients as far as taking into consideration the patient as a whole when diagnosing them. Experiences like these made Suzanne start to reconsider the path that she was on and whether she was cut out to be a doctor. This formed what she describes as a dilemma for her. But how can you save more than one? How can you save the many? You know, that ethical mm. dilemma, like, do you sacrifice one to save the many or do you sacrifice many to save the, the world? I, for me, I started thinking more globally. Ladies, take your passport to the next level with Up in the Air Life Luxury Travel. Up in the Air Life curates five-star international experiences that showcase the lifestyle you deserve no matter where you are in the world. Just choose your destination and head to the airport because Up in the Air Life takes care of everything and prepares you throughout the trip planning process for the getaway of a lifetime. Visit upintheairlife.com and use the code QUEEN, Q-U-E-E-N, to save big on your next week-long vacation. See you in the air. Growing up in an immigrant family, Suzanne had to learn and understand her African heritage and culture and balance that out with her Black American culture as a child. Even growing up, because they would speak Igbo, they would tell stories about thinking that I didn't understand. Well, the funny thing about when you speak a foreign language in the home, to your not to your children, maybe to each other, your child picks it up. So I understood all of their conversations. And I remember they had, were saying something and I was 10 or 11 and I responded and they just stared at me. They're like, you understand what we're saying? I'm like, yes. <laughs> They're like, oh, snap, all this time. <laughs> <laughs> I've always understood what you were saying. They're like, oh, we should probably teach you Igbo then. I'm like, yeah, because I can't mm-hmm. speak it very well. Yeah. And to this day, I can't speak it, but I can understand it um, because my, my dad speaks one light dialect and my mom speaks another dialect. When they speak okay. together, they merge the dialects. And so when I was trying to speak, I would merge the dialects and people would laugh at me. And uh, then you're like, okay, you I become quit. self-conscious. <laughs> okay. So how has identity played into your personal and professional life? And have you found it difficult to intersect your Nigerian heritage into, into your life? Because we've kind of touched on this uh, a little bit throughout our conversation. Yeah. So I think I weave, I try to weave my identity very well. I think for me, because of my background and the all 
the constant struggle of where you know you fit in between the African and you're African and you're American and you have to kind of put yourself a certain way in order to get different jobs and things mm-hmm. like that. It's it's been interesting. I think for me my I I learned a lot from both my father and my mother. They always like look presentable because you never know who you're going to run into. That's true. Um, yeah, but you've done all these things, and I know you graduated um, and did your master's in public health. Am I right? That's correct, yes. So you're into all the science and health and awareness, but then how did the dance fit in? Because you're also a dancer as well. Yes. <laughs> so I'm just curious, like, how did that combination of all that talent, like, how did that come about, you being a dancer? That's a, that's a good question. So, <laughs> um, so I've always – I wanted – when when I was a kid, we would watch that when they actually had music videos on television and they would have dances. We would I would make my brother and sister and learn the dances with me. So like Thriller, Michael Jackson's Thriller or okay. Janet Jackson. We would try to learn the dances. And, we you know, at that time, my mom's like, oh, they like music videos. So she would tape them for us when she um, had to work. And then we could put it put them into the VCR and rewatch these. And so you can pause, you can rewind, you could do mm-hmm. all that. So we would learn dances. And I remember I wanted to, to um, join dance class in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And it was expensive. My parents didn't have, you know, my dad was the only one working. And, you know, I don't know, some African men don't believe in extracurricular activities that are frivolous. So yes. it was okay for me to be in math league and <laughs> all of, the, all of yeah. those other things. But to do dance, well, what what is the purpose of that? What will that get you in the future? I don't know. It's fun. And I'm a kid. <laughs> <laughs> will it make you some money? No, it won't. <laughs> Will will you be doing this when you get older? No, I won't. But can I do it now? Because I'm a kid. Remember, I'm a kid. Right. Right. So my mom would try to scrape some money and I went to one or two dance classes. Absolutely loved it. Mm-hmm. And then they talk to you about, okay, if you want your child to be a dance, it's like $200 for the season. And then you have to pay for costumes and you have to do this. Oh, I was immediately pulled out. <laughs> so <laughs> as soon as the money starts coming, um, being talked about, it's just like, yeah, nah, no, we tried yeah. not today. <laughs> Find a hobby that doesn't cost money. Okay. Exactly. Well, soccer costs money. So why could I do soccer, but I can't do dance. So and, yeah. Yeah. Or do tennis, but I can't do dance. Um, so when I got into um, the when I moved to North Dakota, I because I, my dance was just self taught at that time. We didn't have YouTube or anything. We just had music videos. So I would mm-hmm. try to learn off music videos. And so when I got into high school, I tried out as a freshman for the dance team, knowing that I had very little technical experience because um, I only had the few dance classes when I was in Tennessee. Um, and hardly any in North Dakota. I was like, oh, they have all these dance schools in North Dakota. Went to a couple dance classes, same thing. Okay, well, yeah, we can try it. It looks like it's only $12 for, per class. Oh, Susan's great. Okay, then $200 per season. Cost you, oh, you're done. <laughs> and so when I tried out for dance team, I made it. I made the JV squad, and I was just ecstatic. So I wow. tried to learn. I was the only black girl in this high school dance mm-hmm. team. Oh. Which again is yes. Yes. Were there I was many the only black girl? Were there many black kids in your school at that point in time? 
only from the Air Force Base. All the black kids came from the Air Force Base. I was the only black kid that lived in town. There was another black kid that lived in town, but he went to the other high school, Red River. And so everyone thought we were related. I'm like, no. Oh, is Darren oh. your brother? No. He, he, <laughs> so we knew of each other, but we, were, we yeah. didn't like each other because, because of that. We yeah. <laughs> Oh, uh, that's the most annoying thing. Like you see two Chinese kids, so they must be related because you both are Chinese. No, I mean if we went with that, you know, logic, then every white person must be related, right? <laughs> like, let's discuss yes. this. <laughs> so dumb. So dumb. I know. So go on. Um, yeah. So I I I got a the dance team and I learned and then I would try to take classes. Uh, but again, my father was like, "This is not." You can do this for now, but I will let you be on. But you need to be done. You need to focus on school. As long as it doesn't in- interrupt your school, you have to get all A's. You have mm-hmm. to make sure you're on National Honor Society. You have to make sure you're on boards. All of these crazy, which the, as an over, that's I guess that's how I became an overachiever is because mm-hmm. in order to do dance, in order to be able to do the things I wanted to do. Then I had to get straight A's. I had to be on National Honor Society. I had to be on like student council or whatever for my extracurriculars for college applications. And I'm like, well, if that's the way that I can be able to do what I want to do, then I'll do it. So you just kind of, even though your parents don't realize you're compromising with them, you're you're in your head, you're compromising because you're like, you know what? I'm going to do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. But I'm under your house, so I kind of need food and a place to sleep. <laughs> Even though Suzanne had a college degree and the brains to back it up, finding a job wasn't easy. I, after grad, undergrad, I couldn't really find a job. And the whole needing education thing resonated in my head. My father was mad at me because I didn't go straight to medical school or pharmacy mm-hmm. school. So he was very unhappy with me. And my mom's like, well, try public health. Like that's, you know, you're still interested in healthcare. She was more reasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got my master's degree, went into public health. My first job out of that was working at a law firm. And that's where I thought maybe I could be a lawyer. Uh, again, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up, but <laughs> maybe I could be a lawyer. Yeah, um, And that's really where... For me, that law firm, there was only two other African-Americans there. One was, he was a shareholder. He actually got his law degree at Harvard. So he was revered, just Mm -hmm. absolutely revered. The other guy didn't get, as a lawyer, um, Kevin Lindsay, he didn't get his degree at at Harvard and he was treated differently. I think that was the very first time I had seen two African-American men treated differently because of where they went to school or just because of it was it was very interesting yeah that um, is interesting and I thought yeah and I was like well okay um, I'm gonna look at this dynamic and see how that plays and I had a secretary and I remember one of the things she told me she's like well a lot of because I was struggling and the my even my boss they for some reason it was really hard to try to break through and show I had to always constantly prove how smart I was constantly prove um, that I could do the job constantly be on time. If I slipped up a tiny bit, Oh, Susan, you know, you're just not really performing. You're not doing well. And I'm just like, I don't understand that this person came in drunk into work and as a lawyer, didn't even take his calls and you're okay with him. Me, I literally went on vacation, which you knew about, I wasn't able to answer the calls, but I had someone do backup for me, and yet I'm in trouble. Right. Um, and that's a double standard. Yep. 
there's a double standard. When her law firm lost a big client, Susan got laid off, but she saw this as an opportunity to use her public health degree and work for the Department of Health. Susan noticed that once again, she was the only black female in her entire division, and there were very few people of color in her area of work. It's great that you're in such a position, but it's sad that you're the only person in that position or one of the few people in that position um, at such a level with your skin color. I had no mentors. All my mentors were white. I had no mentors that looked like me. The one mentor that I still have to this day, he works at the, when I was doing actually in undergraduate school, I was doing a um, internship with the head of in county public health department, um, Mike, Mark Brooks, African-American male. I was just like, is this how it is everywhere? He's like, yes, Susan, you, you are a rare breed. You are a rare breed and you will, this will always be your burden. Um, and I didn't understand what he meant until I got into my positions I did. And I would talk to him again. And he's just like, congratulations. It's like, has it been hard for you? And I said, well, the hardest thing is I, every single time I have to convince everyone that I am smart enough and I deserve to be here. Mm -hmm. I'm really tired of that. And he's like, I understand. And he's like, it's the higher you climb, the harder it will be. Mm. So, um, and th that's true. I wanted to actually get to be higher in my job at, at the Scientific Registry of Transplant Recipients, SRTR, and my boss could not, he was white male, could not fathom me being a director. So the best offer he was going to give me was an associate director, even though I was running the entire organization. Wow. And I decided, you know, as Africans, you, you pray to God and you know, you're mm -hmm. Catholic or whatever, or Presbyterian or whatever. And I just remember asking for that raise or asking for a promotion. And I remember going home and just crying and being like, I don't know what I did. What I've done everything that I'm supposed to do. I, yes, I'm not a doctor. Maybe that was part of it. I've worked hard. I've um, I have been the only African-American woman and difficult part about it too, is I was facing all this adversity in my job. I was also facing adversity within my own African community. Damn, so wow. the fact that I wasn't a doctor, I would have my aunties and, you know, say, Oh, you, but you know, my son's at Stanford. Mm -hmm. If you want to go to Stanford, I can put him a good work. I'm already, I already have my graduate degree. I'm done. Well, you can still, you know, you, California has this thing. You could still go to medical school if you want to. My my son is at Stanford. Let him put in a good word for you. <laughs> put your application in. I don't want to be a doctor. I don't want to go to Stanford. Wow. And they would just stare at me. Or the fact that, you know, we would dress nice. Oh, you're you think you're too you're better than us because your hair is nice. For example, I wore my hair natural, but I you know, would take care of it because my mom was very careful about us taking care of it. I stopped mm -hmm. using a relaxer, but I was able to get my hair down to the middle of my back. Mm -hmm. Oh, you think you're better than everyone. You're trying to be white. I'm like, um, I'm not the one bleaching my face and wearing no. extensions. So is, that is so crazy. <laughs> I don't know I, what you're talking about. <laughs> parents did get a divorce. Oh, she's looking for a husband. And my mom's not like that at all. It just made me angry. How can this community that is supposed to be my support system where I'm supposed to have family, you know, friends and family be so against the fact of me having success. It was infuriating. No, sorry. I'm just like, I'm so fascinated by the fact that like, here you are, you you're successful by like most people's standards, you know, you've accomplished all this. 
um, you know, not only just being a, a black uh, black person, but a woman uh, who's smart and is is in an industry that's, you know, I, I believe isn't male dominated. Mm-hmm. And Very yet, yeah, but yet here you are questioning yourself um, about, you know, not feeling good enough or people questioning you about not being good enough. And it blows my mind that um, that's still something that within our culture as Africans and within the Western culture, um, it's something that we're at conflict with. And, mm-hmm. and, I, and how would you go about addressing something like, um, like that? You know, especially within like cousins and aunties and, and, you know, even yeah. parents, you know, I, and I think I, you know, it, I, it's, uh, I have friends who, um, are like me, first generation American. So their parents are from Egypt. Mm-hmm. Um, so my friend that's from Egypt, she's Muslim. And then I have friends that are first generation American. They're Somalian or Ethiopian. And we talk about this all, we actually laugh and joke and we think it's funny, mm-hmm. but I think with first generation Americans, kids born here, parents originally from the countries that that is a struggle that Mm -hmm. is a struggle we have um all of us i mean if you talk to any first generation it's this weird dichotomy of and but in different cultures you might have a little bit more of a support system like my friend who's egyptian the egyptian support system is so much stronger however when they go back home they there's this weird oh because you're american you have all this money my mm-hmm. cousins and uh, like true aunties and cousins, blood relatives back home think I'm a millionaire. They're like, oh my gosh, you're a millionaire. You have all this money. You do all these things. Right. Oh, you just probably eat bonbons and sit on a case lounge. And I'm like, <laughs> no, I work really hard. I work sometimes 80 hours a week and wow. I would love to have a chase lounge and I would love <laughs> to have bonbons. Like, can you get right. those for me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's discuss that for a minute. The bonbons. I just got a new car from the car I've been driving since... Like college, I just got an adult car with my adult money. Like, oh. <laughs> let me enjoy a couple things at a time. <laughs> that is so funny, but that that is so that's a problem though. Back home, people who work in, you know, in in the West or work in any place outside of Africa, you're automatically considered to have all this money, but they don't know the struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, right, you know they that you yeah, that you have bills to pay, and you know the economy is very different. You know. Um, right. and a currency works different there. You know, the dollar may be strong, you know, back home, but the dollar's a dollar in the U.S., <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. And that's yeah. where I'm working. Exactly. US. Exactly. And so I think that's, that's the struggle is you have your regular job. People see you, like your Americans mm-hmm. see you as this and this. And it's different in the black American community. Black Americans are like, yep, I don't know my heritage. You know, I, you know like, I know that. I was on a slave plantation. It's mm-hmm. different. It's a different sense and a different feeling. So when I explain my struggles and stuff like that to Maya, and she's like, girl, you just, that's a white man putting you down. They'll let him get into your brain and put you down. I'm like, okay, it's, mm-hmm. but it's not. It's like mm-hmm. black Americans. It's the white man. It's, you know, my own culture. It's my family back home. It's, mm-hmm. I have five different things I have to prove things to people for. And I, I, mm-hmm. it can swallow you. You can mm-hmm. let it swallow you or you can say, you know what? I don't care about any of you. And I think that's for me how I've been able to rise above that is I don't owe any of you anything. You've discussed a lot about race and you faced a lot, you know, based on, you know, your gender, based on your skin color, based on your profession. And which kind of just brings me to 
um, to your husband. How did you how did you meet, and did you have any immediate concerns about a future with him, considering his race and the, you know the fact that you know you're black and he's white? And were yeah, there any? Absolutely. Uh, and just to add on to that, you know, let me just throw it up to you. Uh, were there any cultural adjustments as you've made in your in your life because of that? I haven't made any cultural adjustments. I think he would probably have. Um, we met at, so I was in the middle of going, deciding to go to grad school. I had applied and I was dancing for um, an art artist who, who liked to have dancers in his art studio for um, an event. And I met this girl. Her name was Jennifer. She, she was a white girl, red hair, spunky, spontaneous. And she's like, Oh, I love you. Just like the type of person that wants to be your best friend. And you're like a little apprehensive about, you're like, um, <laughs> who are you? Who are you? But she is, I mean, she's still my friend to this day. She's the most, she has the most beautiful soul. She, there are people like, I don't see color. And you like give them side eye. She's the type mm-hmm. of person where she's like, I don't see color. And in fact, I've worked in like with Somali refugees and you're like, uh, oh, and then you're like, is that uh-huh. white girl? And you're, and, but she's like, no, I literally, she is the rainbow. To, she is the person that will bring fabric to bring people together. She just has a beautiful soul. And That's so amazing. she invited me to the end of, end of summer party. A whole bunch uh-huh. of people there that I didn't know. I ended up sitting next to Mark and my husband, my future husband, or my current husband, my only mm-hmm. husband. And he just started talking to me and I just started talking to him. Uh-huh. And I left early because he, I thought he had somewhere to be and I had somewhere to be. And he had called Jennifer and said, I really like this girl. And she's like, oh, my gosh, I think she likes you, too. Because I had called Jennifer to apologize for leaving early, heading to another event. But I told her, oh, it was really nice to talk to that guy. She's like, ah. And I had just gotten out of a relationship that mm-hmm. um, I was just like, I just am done with men. All Men of all kinds. They're all terrible people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think every so, woman at some point goes through that phase. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so he found me back when MySpace, MySpace was around. And oh, we um, talked on MySpace and we got emails and talked on email. And it was just, he would just have conversations. And then finally mm-hmm. asked me out on a date. And I said, you know, FYI, I, I, I like, the funny thing was I literally just put it out there. I'm like, black, I'm, Af- I'm African. My parents are African. This is my life. This is mm-hmm. who I am. And he's like, that's cool. I'm white. I'm German. I don't care. <laughs> I was just like, mm. okay, savant, let's figure out if this is going to work out. Mm-hmm. And it did. I mean, he came to Ebo Fest with me. He wore traditional Nigerian dress. And when my aunties, non-related, non-related aunties were talking about him and Ebo negatively, mm-hmm. I just shot them a look. I'm like, you know what? Well, I would hope that you guys would respect him and understand him. Oh, you forgot that you know how to, you understand Ebo. <laughs> yep, you forgot. Suzanne's then boyfriend, Mark, wanted to experience every part of Suzanne's life. And Suzanne took notice to how different their backgrounds were, especially him growing up as an only child to German parents. But Mark always felt like an outsider in his own world. His, his parents and his brothers and sisters were all very accepting. His, his aunts and uncles, all very accepting. His brother's wife, she's a little different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's from the South. And her family is like Southern, like, you know, daughters of the American Revolution type of thing. So, mm-hmm. but that she, that's extended, extended family. Mark doesn't even like her. So it's, it's they, their family is like, well, she's different. We know that she's different. Yeah. Um, so 
it was it they were like we love you we accept you and, and we got married and they were like we merged some traditions together so it wasn't I was always nervous about it, but he never was. I was more nervous than he was. I was like, well, we have to talk about this because of this. And I would just be like, and then in this culture, we have to do this. So Suzanne, African women married to white men have become somewhat of a theme for reality television in Nigeria. Why do you think audiences would find this fascinating? And do interracial relationships take away from relationships of people with the same racial background? I think people are fascinated this trend is probably fascinating because they themselves haven't ever reached out of their comfort zone. Mm -hmm. So rather than reaching out of your comfort zone and actually going to another human and a different tribe, different nation, different nationality, you just watch it on TV. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I appreciate about my upbringing and we haven't touched on this is that they were always very open about like, we are one world. We are one people. Mm-hmm. Everyone originated from Africa. All the religions, all the dialects and everything, there's a commonality, there's a thread. That thread intersects everything and is a part of everything. Never forget that. When mm-hmm. someone makes you feel different, even though the world makes you feel different, we are all the same. Why would our creator make us different? Is because we were crazy and we were stupid. And you're like, what? <laughs> Parables? What mm-hmm. are you talking about? And now that I'm older, I'm like, oh, okay, I understand what they were trying to say in parables but mm-hmm. so through that we're all the same you know and I guess even though knowing that I'm different having all these adversities all these things when I ended up with Mark and we had a lot we had a lot in common we had a lot of things that we agreed upon we had a lot of shared interests we still have a lot of shared interests we still our humor is similar like we laugh about the same things we're interested in the same things we are we are part of that thread so, yes, our color of our skin may be different, where I grew up may be different, but somehow, some way, we all were connected. And so I think for me, I'm trying to understand the, the fascination of that because I believe people have their own set of fears and their own set of, they're not as self-actualized as maybe they should be in understanding that this is not a big deal. So just to jump into your work at Be The Match, um, the National mm-hmm. Bone Marrow Donor Program. Um, so what does it take for someone to truly serve and work for a nonprofit? Well, that's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. um, because I think in my experience, I could just tell you about my experience, which is mm-hmm. I know what you're trying to get you and ask about. But sure. in my experience there are different types of nonprofits. The Mm -hmm. be the match that I'm at is a large, it's a very large nonprofit, which is more Mm -hmm. uh, with with a public private partnership. So we Mm -hmm. are a nonprofit. We kind of operate as a private organization and we receive government funding. So we have Mm -hmm. a foundation which receives fundraising from major corporations like GE and um, bigger, bigger organizations. We have our, we have a biotherapies division, which is more private and Mm -hmm. we have kind of partnerships with Magenta Therapeutics. And I think they just announced another partnership with another big um, cell therapy organization. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's more of an affiliate or like a more private venture uh, to offer the services that we have in terms of saving lives through cellular therapies. And then we have our, um, 
different functions that we do for our government work, which is the being the office of patient advocacy to advocate for patients and provide information for patients for hematopoietic cell transplant or stem cell transplant um, for their blood cancers or blood diseases such as leukemia or lymphoma um, and help them get the treatment that they need, which is transplant, which is the only curative therapy that's available. Um, So we, and we're also, we have a the stem cell outcomes database to collect outcomes data to make sure that we continue to advance research and advance um, the therapy moving forward. And we also have, we're the single point of access coordinating center. So we are the national registry um, to facilitate transplants. We are the national registry to take donors, have the donor registry for um, unrelated donors to be available for those that need unrelated donor transplants. So, it's a very large nonprofit organization with many different pieces going through. My role in the universe is, you know, as the director of public and payer policy, is to advocate um, for the work that we do to government um, and also strengthen our partnerships with our um, stakeholders, which include other organizations such as the Lymphoma Leukemia Society, the American Society for Hematology, um, as well as our government partners, uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, the Department of Health and Human Services, um, the FDA, the Federal Drug Administration, as well as our transplant centers, our hospitals, and um, our other cellular therapy network. So my job is kind of massive because I have the government affairs piece that I am the government affairs director, as well as the health policy and payer policy. So payers being insurance companies, um, whether it's um, Optum, Cigna, Anthem, all of those, having those relationships and bringing, helping to address barrier, access barriers to transplant for patients and their families. Um, so that's, that's where I am now. Where I was before was also a nonprofit, but it was also on a national scale. I think when you work for nonprofit on a national scale, your mission is to help the most people as possible so you can fulfill your mission or the organization's mission. And so the work that you do is so intersectional into the community, into the fabric of what is happening on the ground floor. You have to have relationships. You have to know the people that are working on the ground floor. You have to be able to connect them with the information that they need to better do their jobs and to save as many lives as possible. I think where for-profit entities is they're trying to get their products or get their things out to as many people, but they have their obligation only to their shareholders. They don't necessarily have, they have an obligation to their customers, but ultimately it's the decision of the shareholders and their board that they need to be responsible for. Nonprofit, they're responsible to their community. Everything I do is, is, is to enhance the awareness of the work that we do so that I can help save more lives. For example, a lot of people didn't know that transplants can help cure severe sickle cell anemia or sickle cell disease. However, a lot of people that need that treatment don't have donors because in the African-American community, there's a stigma in, you know, being on a registry where someone has your information where you could uh-huh. probably save a life. That is what we're struggling with is trying to get more diverse donors onto our registry, especially of African descent and African American community engagement reps in every state that work with different community members. And the threat is like, there's this stigma like, well, you know, I remember the Tuskegee trials. No, no, you don't. You weren't around then. What's happening 
if it's being shared generationally down the pipeline and you have this stigma, oh, I hate going to doctors, they're just going to take my DNA. No, they're not. <laughs> they can't do that legally without your consent. Yes, right. I know in the United States they did that back in the 1950s and 60s, and that was terrible, which is yeah. why there are all of these rules and laws about it. But you're going to turn down helping to save someone's life. And just as you continue to serve in the role you do and create opportunities and meet the needs of you know, women and, and people everywhere through the work you do, what does the word queen mean to you? Mm, the word queen means protector and overseer. I think queens, in the historical sense, queens have, they serve over their people. They bring people together. They make sure their communities function for the betterment of the community, for the betterment of the world. I think um, they're humbled. They're self-actualized. I think queens are... They understand that the work that they do is not for themselves. It's for others. And so I think, to me, being a queen is being selfless. It's being aware and always wanting more knowledge and, and, and striving for betterment of their community. Step into the throne room with your host, Gloria Mangi. That was the intelligent Susan Lepke. To learn more about the wonderful, life-saving work of Be The Match, visit bethematch.org. If you want to listen to some more great tea from the interview and any other, head over to queenthingspodcast.com or africanqueensproject.org and subscribe to get the tea from the throne. Next up is Aspire to Inspire, and this one will hopefully get you thinking. So stay with us. This segment is brought to you by the Moremi Initiative for Women's Leadership in Africa. The Moremi Initiative is a nonprofit that pursues proactive strategies to develop and empower young women and girls to take on leadership roles in their communities. Their leadership development program focused on mentorship, research, and advocacy has served African and U.S. communities for almost 15 years. Visit moremiinitiative.org to support and work the needs of young queens worldwide. On today's Aspire to Inspire is a woman that made history by being the first elected African female head of state and a personal hero of mine, former president of Liberia, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. After reading her autobiography, This Child Will Be Great, my admiration and respect grew knowing what this queen went through and the obstacles she overcame to get to where she is today. So this little piece of gold is from a Harvard commencement speech she gave a few a few years back. And I know this will make you want to reach higher and work harder. Listen up. One year after my return from Cambridge, I was at it again in a commencement address at my high school alma mater. I questioned the government's failure to address long-standing inequities in a society. This forced me into exile and a staff position at the World Bank. Other similar events would follow in a life, in and out of country, in and out of jail, in and out of professional service. There were times when I thought death was near, and times when the burden of standing tall by one's conviction seemed only to result in failure. But through it all, 
my experience sends a strong message that failure is just as important as success. Thanks for listening to Queen Things with Gloria Mangi. This podcast is a show from the award-winning organization, African Queens Project. To learn more about the show and what we do, visit africanqueensproject.org. I'm your host, Gloria Mangi. The show is produced by Ngozi Izzy Ahanotu, and it was edited by me, Gloria Mangi. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, as well as on Instagram. Thank you for listening.